And we learned a lot of ways not to do it. And so I think that because they didn't go through all these things, I see some of them making the same mistakes we did a long time ago. Hi, everyone. You're listening to Scaling DevTools. And I'm joined today by Ivan Barazin, who is the founder of Daytona and has had a very, very interesting developer tools career, um, including most recently being the VP of DevX at Infobip. Um, Ivan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So first I have to say I'm the co-founder, so not solo founder. Uh, I have two more founders in Daytona. Um, so just wanted to add that and thanks for having me here. So Ivan, could you tell us a bit about Daytona and what you're doing? Sure. So um, Daytona is a development environment uh, management and orchestration platform, which is a lot of words for saying basically Daytona enables any developer to clone their repository and instantly start coding. Everything that you'd have to do beforehand, uh, you know, setting up any dependencies, installing anything before that, which usually doesn't work right out of the box, is automatically done. And we do it with a specific focus for enterprise companies. Yeah, that's really cool. I like how you list out like all the things that you do. So, you know, you'll get you'll get your code, you'll clone the repo, check out the branch, study the readme, install tools and dependencies, run the build, resolve environment conflicts, and then you might, if you're lucky, be able to write some code. Absolutely. But I feel that's so when I was writing code and this is like 1999, 2000 for the younger um people listening, it might be a long time ago. I remember that you basically opened up your editor, you started coding, and then you sort of just deployed it somewhere to see how it works, or you ran it localhost. But there was nothing underlying, there was no issues you needed to solve to be able to start working, right. And so I think that's something that we want to bring back. Because from for people trying to get into the industry, it's a huge hurdle to learn to code and to figure out is the code running because, or not running because you made an error or because the dependencies or whatever um, underlying development environment isn't set up properly, right? But also if for the senior people as well, it's just a huge waste of time. Like we've seen that engineers waste anywhere from like 50 to 70% of their productive time being the time that they would otherwise be coding on, you know, development environment issues, waiting for tests and builds and stuff like that. Yeah. And this is like not the first foray that you've had in helping people to code quickly, right? Absolutely. This is our second time. So our first time was with Code Anywhere. Um, so Code Anywhere was or is still sort of exists a browser-based IDE. So the idea was, I mean, we started this in 2009. It was called PHP Anywhere. Then we renamed it to Code Anywhere. So I think we were basically the first to ever try that or one of the first. I lie. Heroku was the first first. So Heroku started it and then killed it and then made Heroku. Um, we didn't know that happened. And then we started our own thing. Um, a bit of success, but really, really early technology was not there. The market wasn't ready. People weren't ready. People weren't open to it. So it was very early. And now I feel that the technology and awareness, especially because of Codespaces, the product from GitHub, has very much pushed knowledge and awareness around this type of um, solution. Yeah, yeah. Do you think there's anything like looking back that you learned like from doing that? Because it's, it's something that I think now so many people are really excited about this kind of space as well. 
Well, I learned how not to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so they're like, I mean, the quote is from Edison, like you learned a thousand ways not to do it. And so I think that we really, so we pushed it for a while. So it was 2009 till I think 2016, we were pretty active doing that. So quite a chunk of time. Um, and we learned a lot of ways not to do it. And I think that's sort of, we've in incorporated that into the new product. And when we see competitive products, because they didn't go through all these things, I see some of them making the same mistakes we did a long time ago. So I think that is our advantage that we've been here just we're just old. That's sort of our competitive advantage, I think. Yeah, you've seen everything. Um, and actually, that leads us on to like a really good um, trajectory because uh, one of the things I wanted to do was you've had a lot of um, stages to your career, as I mentioned. So you started out with building, like founding a couple of companies. It was a, a very early acquisition that you had. Um, and then you founded Code Anywhere, right? And then you were at um, InfoBip and now Daytona. So I wondered if we could kind of walk through those and talk about the things that you learned along the way in each of those steps. Sure, absolutely. I mean, the first company was not so much a startup. Um, it was a system integrator company. So basically a company that would sell you and implement or set up uh, Cisco routers and uh, Wi-Fi networks and things like that. So clients would be like hotels or office buildings or whatnot. And the reason I started that company was because I was working for this other company doing running IT, basically. And I wanted to, well, basically, I was scared to quit for some reason, and I could not progress anymore in the company. And so I told the owner um, of the company, I'm like, hey, let's split this out into its own company, thinking, like, so I can offer services to the, um, to the rest of the market, thinking that he'd say no, and then that would be my way out. He said yes, and I ended up making, founding a company. And so I did not know anything about business. So I didn't know the difference between EBITDA or cash flow or all these. Like, I did not know anything. I knew I had to set up, you know, routers and Wi-Fi and things like that. So I learned everything the hard way. It was not an easy journey. But I, when I started understanding things, I, I understood that I could not create an impact or impactful company um, doing that. So I basically sold it to a local competitor. So that was my first little exit. Made a bit of money, nothing great. Um, and then started on our journey with Code Anywhere, and Code Anywhere, as mentioned. So we did that for quite a while. Uh, we were in TechStars, which was cool. Then we lived in Boston for a while, um, and so yeah, we raised a bit of money, about eight hundred fifty thousand dollars for that. But it it sort of plateaued. We didn't know how to scale it further, and so basically, at one point, we you know paid our founder uh, our investors back, and sort of left that as like an internet business on the side. And I focused on creating the conference, which is called Shift, which is actually pretty successful now. Yeah, sorry, that was the, one of the things I had on my list that I didn't even bring up. It's no. very successful. <laughs> That's a huge conference uh, in Croatia, right? It's like thousands and thousands of developers it's about five thousand developers now yeah yeah and how, how did shift get started so shift got started as a way to give back to the community so while we were doing code anywhere we went to comp so we went to a lot of we didn't know how to raise money we didn't know a lot of things and i guess that's how it is um so i knew that there were pitch competitions at conferences where there were investors and so the idea was we get in front of investors by going to pitch competitions so we applied to all these pitch competitions and so we got in everywhere so Tokyo, uh, Beijing, London, Vienna, San Francisco, New York. Like we were on stages everywhere. Like we always got in. 
No one ever gave us money, not once, um, all of all those pitch competitions. But I really enjoyed the conferences. Like the energy in those places were really great. And nothing like that existed in Croatia where I lived. And I'm like, why don't I like sort of, because I met all these people, why don't I try to organize one here? And I have never organized anything larger than a um, birthday party. So I had no idea what I was doing. But yeah, the first one was pretty bad personally people enjoyed it but in the sense i was doing anything i was being the mc having a stage fright um i was like putting up microphones like you didn't have a budget so you had to do a lot of things i had help from friends but still it was very um it was very hands-on so yeah we built that and i said i would never do it again and then people said oh it's great you should do it again we'll sponsor you and we're like ah, okay we'll do it again then i announced it and then when it comes like two months to the conference yo can you sponsor me and they're like uh no there's no budget this year and so I, we ended up losing money for the first three years on the thing. Um, but it kept growing like people-wise. Like it was yeah. like 250 people, then like 300, then 500. So it kept growing. And eventually it started, actually developers became a hot commodity and everyone wanted to hire developers. And then sponsors came in to want to actually sponsor it because they wanted access to software engineers and that's where it actually really started growing and we ended up doing three conferences a year it became my full-time thing after we sort of uh, dropped code anywhere and i ran that uh, up until 2020 uh, when we were acquired by infobip yeah that's i mean there's a lot of things i have that the questions there. like i've done events before and i know it's i know it's so stressful nothing compares to nothing. the night before an nothing event. Um, so could you talk a bit about like, what, what was it that you, that made shift, you know, popular, do you think that what, what did people like about shift? So one thing there, there's multiple aspects of a conference or any event, right? So you have the show, so the speakers, the people that are coming there, that's like one aspect. The other aspect are the attendees, the people that, you know, come there as well. The third part are the people that finance the conference itself. So sponsors and whatnot. Um, and then you have the organization. So basically four, outs, but three outside of your control, right? And so, and I, uh, we learned this by trying. Like we didn't, I didn't understand any of this before. There's very few, I actually started buying books about the event industry about a year or two before I sold it, not before that, but there's very few books. At one point I was contemplating writing a book. I had to organize these things because there's not. Um, and it's super stressful. But when you sort of, figure out the building blocks, it becomes a lot easier. And so what seems to be, for me, the way to keep getting good speakers is be very good to your speakers. And so we always try to, even if we didn't have enough money, we'd have a driver pick them up, we'd get them a flight. Like it was economy class, like, but it's still like, we take your, get your ticket, a driver with your name would be waiting for you. There'd be a dinner for the speakers to get to know each other. Uh, and at one point we also, we stopped doing that more because speakers just don't have time. Uh, but we used to do like sailing and stuff like a day after just for, for the speakers, right? Um, and so when you do all these things for the speakers, I found that they are very impressed and enjoy that. Even like last year or this year uh, when I was at the conference, speakers were like, you guys just take so good care of us. And I'm like, don't they do that at other conferences? Like for me, it's like unheard of. I haven't spoken at that many conferences, so I don't know. And they're like, no, it's wonderful. And that's sort of on, on one side, when you're really good to your speakers, then they are your advocates, both for the attendees and both for other speakers. And they want to come to speak with you, which I think is really great because essentially the show, the centerpiece of the conference then continually wants to come, right? Mm -hmm. um, the second part is 
the we try to create serendipitous encounters for our att- attendees. I'm very much a person that went to a lot of conferences, but I would never go listen to any talk. The idea was, for me, a conference is meeting people, right? And if I meet good people, then I like the conference, so I'll come back. Mm. And so it's like, how do we make things memorable for people and keep it in their mind? And so you'll see things like the soundtrack of the conference will have the same couple of songs repeat the entire time when things are happening so that that gets in your mind and people will talk about it. And when they hear the song six months later, they think about the conference. Another thing is that like you always like food and drinks are always for free. Uh, but we always have like cocktails that are being made at the conference, both cocktails and mocktails. Um, and people like to stay in line for those cocktails and like they're talking about them and you'll talk with someone in front of, in front of you or behind you. Oh, this is good or this is bad. It, it gives you sort of like um, an icebreaker with people that you don't know. Um, and also, so I also like cars and I was fortunate enough to get Porsche as a sponsor for the last three years. And so you can drive Porsches at our conference. So like the first time a person would drive a GT3 would be at our conference. And that is a memorable event for someone that likes cars. That's right? a really memorable Right? Event. And then they yeah. talk to other people about it. And they're like, oh, I was at this conference. I drove like a, a sports car. And and there's also there's also simulators. And the winner gets to, uh, a trip every year to Istanbul to race on the actual racetrack. Um, so like we tr- so we also have try to do very well with the parties, bring in some DJs. It's like, how do we create memorable events around the conference or better yet, um, events where people have to interact with people that they don't know. And I think that is the key factor of what we do. So it's super laid back. Um, and if you've seen the pictures, now it's in a stadium. So it's like a 360 degree. I don't Have you seen the pictures? No, that's me. Can I show you here? Yeah, can, yeah, yeah. can I show you yeah, here yeah. what it looks like really quickly? Um, I guess we'll share it with other people um, somewhere. So this is the this is the stage. Wow. Wow, that is amazing. Let me describe what I'm seeing here. It's like a, it's almost like a coliseum of like everyone around a, a kind of a stage in the middle of a huge screen. Lighting looks unbelievable. Yeah. Wow. How how do the speakers engage? Like so it's a three a it's a 360 stage. So yeah. it's very uh, odd for speakers if they haven't done it. Um, but when they get used to it, I think it's okay. It's a bit disorienting sometimes when I'm on the stage as well. You sort of lose track where you are. Yeah. Uh, but it it we were forced to do it because there was no other venue that could have that many people. And the only venue that was close was this circular venue. Yeah. Um, and it ended up we ended up using that to our benefits because the outer rim are where the um, where the sponsors are, where the lounge area is, and where food and beverages are. And the thing is you can't get lost because you just don't turn around, just keep walking the same direction and you will get to where you want to go yeah. because it's circular. Yeah. And so, uh, but anyway, I get back to the conference. It wasn't always this big, but that is sort of what we built it on and people really like it for all these things. And obviously yeah. the content is great because the speakers you've seen that, that have been there are awesome. Yeah. And I thank them for coming. And yeah, we just made a really, really fun event for people. And I did not sleep a lot because of the conference. True, to your point. And I can talk about that as well, if interesting, but. Yeah, um, one of the things I kind of wanted to ask there is like about what it was like then going to when Infobip acquired the conference and like how, I guess like they will, like if they own it, they're like, they have like marketing objectives around 
like the conference and I wondered like how, what was that like as well? So uh, InfoBip, just to give a story, InfoBip is a competitor to Twilio. So it's one API for voice, email, SMS, whatnot. And so they're huge. They're a company you've probably never heard of uh, that started in a village in Croatia, bootstrapped to a billion in revenue, to one billion, no external funding. Um, they raised a bit um, the last couple of years, but that was just for M&A. So they're at like two billion now. They're still private. They're old. They're old. they're the only large competitor that's still private. So we'll see um, when the IPO window seems to be opening again. So uh, we'll see what happens. Good luck to them. And anyway, so what they wanted to do, no one. They were a top-down wholesale resale company, not a bottom-up like Twilio. Twilio started with like Ask Your Developer, the famous. You know, they have a book about it right, right now. So they wanted to get to the developer because. Um, they're comparable companies, 40 to 50% of their revenue originates bottom up and they had no access to that. And so acquiring the conference was like, okay, we have now access to, you know, 5,000 a year at least. Um, so they brought me on, I became the chief developer experience officer and I ran not just the conference, but the DevRel team, the startup team as well. Startup like Startups are like a startup program that, you know, AWS has or whatever, like get the good startups, offer them free credits, they use the service, and hopefully when they scale, they'll use us um, as a customer. And so I basically had to set that up. The good thing was that shift in the developer community was a bigger brand than InfoBip, so they let it be as is. So the idea is, and it still hasn't, they're still um, very lenient on the team, whereas they can do whatever they want, bring whatever they want, and InfoBib is sort of just like a backstory sponsor, you know, their flags are in the background. So when you think of the conference, like, oh, InfoBib basically it sponsors it in that sort of way, but it, yeah. it gets their attention of developers without marketing them um, on anything specific. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I've met uh, I've met Devrels from Infobip. Very nice people. Actually. There you go. Yeah, yeah, there, yeah there's a lot. lot in, there's yeah. a lot in this neck of the woods. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Okay, so you mentioned that top down versus bottom up, and was that something that when you came in you were like, we need to be doing more <laughs> bottoms up, or was that? So they their initiative was they wanted it. Yeah. So they acquired the they acquired the conference. They brought me on because they like we don't know how to do this. Can you do this? And so it's always hard. There's a lot of articles about pe from people. It's like, don't be the first DevRel hire because you're usually not set up for success because if the company is large enough, the company has a completely different way of um, of working. And this is true. Like when I came into InfoBip, it was like two and a half thousand people. When I left, it was almost 4,000. And so this is like a very top-down, enterprise-focused type of company. And now you're jumping in. It's like, hey, we have to fly over the world, do meetups and conferences. And like a lot of people in the company think that you're just spending money and having fun and not working. So there's a lot of uh, barriers mental that you had that we had to break inside the company to allow us to do what we wanted to do. But yeah, I think we were very successful in doing that. What do you think was successful? Like how do you... How? So you just mentioned that you've met people from InfoBip. Yeah. Like that didn't happen three years ago because yeah. there was none, right? So yeah. um, InfoBip now, I think the the teams that I manage, both Startup and DevRel, did about you know 30 conferences last year. Um, they also won. I had already left, but I'm super proud. They won like best DevRel program of last year. And they, two, and they also won the other category, best community DevRel program of last year. Wow. So there's... Um, there was an initiative to do meetups across the African continent. So a colleague of mine 
they're in Nairobi actually right now, but they did, I think, seven or eight countries around Africa did meetups all over the place. Wow. Yeah, so um, there's been quite a big, there's quite a bit of impact been inside the community and we've gotten awards, I guess, um, to show that there has been. Also the number of people using the self-service, so actual developers using it, there's always numbers there as well, um, but yeah. Yeah, but it sounds like you were able to kind of focus on the kind of like those real deep engagements like conferences, events, meetups. Um, Absolutely creating content. Uh, we're working on, we still haven't edited that, but like documentation is still on a to-do. Um, we created these uh, SDKs to, to consume it. We even embedded a version of Daytona inside their doc, inside their docs. So if you go to InfoBips documentation, um, where the code snippets are, you can actually hit run. It'll open up a browser-based editor. It'll spin up the develop environment and you can send an SMS literally right away. Like it works automatically out of the box. And the idea is that engineers can actually test the API before checking anything out. They just have to log in, that's it. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And was that hard to kind of get, like, you know, implement that as like a, within the organization or everyone was pushing? Well, you have, depends. So for that specific, it wasn't that hard, but for other things, I think when you, for anyone, and you, you see this with companies now, you have companies that are bottom-up that are now trying to switch uh, top-down. So you have like Notion and Airtable, even Twilio are all bottom-up companies that are now trying to convert to enterprise because that is where the expansion is. Um, and that's hard. And the same thing is vice versa when you have an enterprise-focused company that is now going, or top-down, that is now going bottom-up. It's a very hard adjustment because everyone inside the company and when you have large hierarchies, have a one mindset. And this takes a very, these are two di very different ways of selling uh, a product. And so it sort of depends on what you're trying to achieve and how that aligns in people's minds, right? So I think creating a product for self-service or to consume self-service itself was not that hard of a sell versus doing, you know, meetups across, you know, the African continent was a much harder sell. Yeah. Because the metrics are fuzzy right yeah so because i feel like this is a really kind of like key issue because i even have I, I know someone who's a user researcher and you know there's you get insights and these insights show that you need to make changes which is great but that's only such a small part of the job because it's like the big part is actually getting people to get on board with those changes and i i don't know if it's like it sounds like a lot of your job would be to help push, like push. I don't know if that's the right word. Negotiation. <laughs> Negotiation. Negotiation. Yeah. Yeah. So Negotiation. I wonder if Definitely. you've got any kind of tips or things that you learned along the way. So I think you have to have a spot. And I've seen people not succeed. And I think the key for us being able to, and there were hard moments for sure. There was moments where I was like, you know, screw this. I'm out. Like, I don't want to do this. Uh, the good thing was that I, because I was acquired by the founders, I really worked hard to keep that relationship with the founders and essentially have them as a sponsor to what we're doing because it's really hard because, you know, you have, uh, everyone has their OKRs in the, in the team, right, in the company, and everyone's pushing their agenda. I mean, for the sake of the company, but each one has their own agenda on how they want to achieve it. And so there's only finite resources that you can have. And so if you can have a high enough sponsor, um, then they sort of give you, quote unquote, I won't say like protection, but they set you up to succeed. It's like, 
let let them do what they're planning to do because the time to horizon for this, because bottom-up is not tomorrow, right? Bottom-up is not sales. It's not like you have to make 100 calls a day and then close you know, one or whatever it is. It's like, it is just like general awareness going to events and then it sort of picks up. But the good part about bottom-up and you know scaling any, we're talking dev tools now, once you have that bottom-up motion done, it, it it starts growing by itself. It's it's scalable. You don't have to add headcount to scale the amount of people learning about you, right? So, you know, everyone knows, I'll take the example again, Twilio. Everyone knows about Twilio, every developer. They don't have to keep scaling DevRel people. They've actually cut back on it for people to know about Twilio. But if you're top down, you have to scale sales and customer success people as you scale the number of um, mm. customers, right? So it's a very different ballgame. And if you can have that sponsorship sort of, um, I think that will help you. If you don't, it is very, very hard. And I've seen a lot of people sort of just leave, quit, get fired because it just doesn't work out. Yeah, that makes sense. I, and I, I think it's like a pattern I've seen among companies I've spoken to. Is it seems to be if a company focuses on something, it's because the founders or the top people care about it. And it's very, very hard to be good at something that they don't care about. Absolutely. And so if you go to a company, so I'll make this up, a company that's 500 people and the founders did not say, we want this we're going to say top-down, switching to bottom-up or adding, and they want a DevRel person. If the people that decided it are lower down uh, and you don't have that sponsor higher up, you're probably going to fail because you don't, because they'll see the investment in the sense of cost on the Excel sheets at the end of the month or year, but they won't see the you know inbound effect yet because it takes a long time to get there. And then that's when the friction arises. Yeah, that's, uh, I think that's a really, really important point. So, we are in a very interesting studio where <laughs> we had to do all the production ourselves. So I think we're running out of time a little bit. Okay. Um, even though I have so many more questions for you, Ivan. So could you tell us a bit about how you're thinking about Daytona and how you're thinking about learning, taking what you've learned from InfoBIP and, and Shift and kind of thinking about growth for Daytona? Sure, absolutely. So um, one of the things that was interesting with Shift is that organizing a conference, it's a developer conference, it, it was both top-down and bottom-up sales, in the sense sales, if we can call them that, because top-down, the sponsorships are large enterprises, so Microsoft, Docker, Red Hat, whatever. So it's it has the same sales motion as a top-down sales. And then you have people that buy tickets, which is bottom-up, right? You have to have that community that wants you there. So we were, when we were building that conference, we are doing both at the same time. Uh, before that, when I was at Code Anywhere, I was doing just bottom-up because I didn't know about enterprise sales. And then when I was at InfoBip, I was working on bottom-up, but I was the purchaser as a top-down. So I was an enterprise person, right, buying things. So I was now for the first time in that seat, and I could finally understand what that buyer was like and what, what they needed. And so now going into Daytona, we looked at the market and we're saying, looking at who's doing what, and we see Codespace is doing a great job GitHub's product, but they're bottom up. They're a SaaS product. They're only, they're focused mostly, although companies can use it. The way they're set up, they're focused on a bottom up motion and individual developers. What we learned at Code Anywhere is that this type of product will succeed only, and this is our thesis, if it's a top down motion. And so learning that at Code Anywhere, that's where we decided to push our initiatives now with Daytona. And the, the learnings, again, being at InfoVip of how people think 
in the position of a company has helped a lot because I think when you start a new company, a lot of us don't have that sort of corporate experience or never will be. And it's sort of hard to do a top-down motion because you don't understand these things. They're like beyond me that someone would pay $100,000 a year or a million dollars a year for a contract for software. I think like that would be insane. Like, But now I know that that's not insane and that people do buy these things. And so when going for uh, Daytona, again, there was a couple of learnings, but also we firmly believe that you know, GitHub's Codespace is doing great and they're telling the world that it's a great product, but they don't offer an enterprise solution. So what we're looking for is like, we'll, we're basically encouraging them to keep doing what they're doing, which is preaching that this is a good thing. And then going out, we're going out and offering it to enterprises with very specific needs of the enterprise, security, stability on-prem and stuff like that. But yeah. So yeah, you're kind of making sure to do hit both kind of categories but the top down is like kind of probably the so we're letting github do the bottom up yeah and the marketing to the developer mm. community and then we sell to the top down that oh, they so cannot offer will, so you won't at all really worry about bottoms up at all for not them. for the so bottoms up in the sense of there you will be able to download a version of uh, daytona yeah. and set it up on your server or cluster yeah. or whatever it be that will be there there'll be that motion but the individual developer as a SaaS product, we're not going to launch that in the foreseeable yeah. future for now. Yeah. Okay, that's awesome. Yeah, which is really interesting because a lot of startups I speak to, you know, it's kind of like gospel that it's, it's always bottoms up. But I I mean, I think I've told people, everyone on the podcast, I worked in sales at Stack Overflow and it was kind of everyone's always astonished that they even had a sales team. And yeah, it, it works. <laughs> it can work. Which is surprising to a lot of people, yeah. And it's so it's really cool that that's actually like where you're you're planting the flag. Like this is <laughs> absolutely. I think it's counterintuitive. Like most dev tool companies are bottom up, and I think that's the way to do it. The specifics of this type of company is that as a bottom up, it usually requires a lot of compute, which comes at a very very high cost. And so yesterday, I think Replit, which Replit is very similar to Code Anywhere, just a decade later, and you know they're now worth one point two billion. So they came sort of at a better time than we did. But they're cutting out free hosting and all these things because there's a huge amount of compute cost that is incurred because of this, right? And you have to give it out as a SaaS product. So um, that's one of the reasons why a code spaces, which is owned by Microsoft, which has Azure, is someone or an AWS can do that very well because they own basically the cloud, right? And you as a startup is not where I want to be. That's not the fight I want to pick. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That makes sense. So if you had like one or two kind of like very kind of quick takeaways that you think founders should take away um, from your experiences, mm -hmm. what would they be? So the way I'm setting up the company now is I it's really hard to do, but I really think that everyone should be essentially DevRel partially. So as you mentioned before, like everyone should be singing the gospel of the company. And I feel that People have, you know, different takes on this. There's engineers that don't want to do it at all. They feel very, like, shy or that it's not important. But there's ways to do it that are very easy on them. Um, so, like, uh, our colleague will, you know, set up just video calls with the team or just audio calls and then just record them, then tr transcribe that and then create that into a post or whatnot. And so the reason why I think everyone in the team should be partially DevRel is that the people that make the product 
are the ones that can tell the story the best, I think, and are the most believable, right? You have great several people and you can hire them and bring them to the company, but the people that have actually built it, I think are the most believable. And if you can create what I'm trying to do, if you can create a culture of your company while you're small, that it's everyone's job to do just a bit. Like you don't have to jump on planes and go to conferences. You can do like a Zoom call with someone or, or just be um, inside or Discord or Slack, whatever it would be, just like be part of the community and sort of tell that story. I think that you can get a much greater impact or uh, to the audience. I think it will be more believable to the audience audience being potential users, and it will help you orchestrate your mission as a company if you build that early in. I mean, that's my thesis right now. And I was I was talking to a couple of people, I think we'll do a Twitter space about this as well. Um, do you sort of like outsource it to a DevRel team? Or do you do it like have everyone do that right now? I'm currently in the boat of like trying when you're a small company, we're 11 people, um, trying everyone to be part of that right now. So that's what I would try. Yeah. Everyone should be DevRel. A bit. A bit. Okay. Awesome. So if people want to uh, learn about Daytona or hear more from you, where can they? uh... So Daytona.io is the website. Not much there yet, but there will be. Uh, Actually, there's a pretty big blog there. You can read a lot of stuff. Uh, But also, uh, first name, last name, Twitter, LinkedIn, anywhere, uh, at Gmail. It all works. So um, I'm pretty transparent. Ivan Barazin. Ivan. I-V-A-N. B-U-R-A-Z-I-N. Thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you again soon.